I know that the work that needs to get done is going to get done by us. And yeah, we need the help of white allies, but true white allies. Like true white allies who are willing to put themselves on the line in order for us to have justice, in order uh, for us to have equality. Welcome to Vinyasa in Verse, the podcast where we connect mind, body, and spirit through poetry and practice. I'm Leslie Ann Hobayan. Together, we'll explore different ways of connecting with our innermost selves and how to tap into the flow of the universe. Because once that happens, anything is possible. Your best life starts now. Hey loves, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about stories. We carry so many of them in our bodies. Some we're aware of, some we're not. Some are light, some are heavier than others. Some shape our identities into something we're not. So let me ask you this. Are you ready to release these old stories so you can be free to fly as your most authentic self? Are you ready to plant new seeds in your life's garden? If you're ready to heal, Come join me on Tuesday, March 30th for Write to Heal, a writing workshop that will help you do just that. We'll combine meditation with writing and ritual to release and open up a path for your healing journey. For more information and registration, just hop over to my website, suryagiyan.com slash write to heal. Sign up today because your best healed life starts now. And now on to today's episode. Hello, loves. Welcome to another episode of Vinyasa in Verse. How are you on this beautiful day? I hope wherever you are, you're able to take a moment to breathe, to pause, to find beauty in just the slightest, briefest moment of a deep breath. Inhale and exhale. Okay. So um, today I'm recording this after the killings in Atlanta. Eight lives were lost. Six of them were Asian women. And of course, naturally, I would like to talk a little bit about that, about how I'm feeling about it, about how the response, I don't know, just, just the response. Um, but first let's, let's get ourselves grounded and centered, um, with a little Hafez, shall we? Okay. So here we are with the gift. We will rifle through our Oracle of poems and see where we land. Okay. So this poem, throw me on a scale, throw me on a scale. Today, love has completely gutted me. I am lying in the market like a filleted grouper, speechless, every desire and sinew absolutely silent, but I am still so fresh. Everything is now the same to me. Listen, the touch of a beautiful woman as she lifts me near, drawing my scent into her body. 
she thinks about taking me home. The touch of a wondrous fly drinking my vital fluids through a strange shaped flute. The sun laying its radiant gaze against my cheek. Human voices and the breeze from a passing horse's tail. All send miraculous currents into my world. God's beauty has split me wide open. Throw Hafez on a scale, wrap me in a cloth, bring me home. Lift a piece of my knowledge to your lips so I can melt inside of you and sing. Hmm, I have to read that again. Okay, bear with me. Throw me on a scale. Today, love has completely gutted me. I am lying in the market like a filleted grouper. Speechless, every desire and sinew absolutely silent, but I am still so fresh. Everything is now the same to me. Listen. The touch of a beautiful woman as she lifts me near, drawing my scent into her body, she thinks about taking me home. The touch of a wondrous fly drinking my vital fluids through a strange shaped flute. The sun laying its radiant gaze against my cheek, human voices, and the breeze from a passing horse's tail, all send miraculous currents into my world. God's beauty has split me wide open. Throw Hafez on a scale, wrap me in cloth, bring me home. Lift a piece of my knowledge to your lips so I can melt inside of you and sing. Whew. I gotta think about that one. I thought we were done with Bring Me Home and then I turned the page and I was like, oh, there's a little bit more. <sighs> and that last part is the part where, to be honest, I'm getting a little, um, a little stuck on. Lift a piece of my knowledge to your lips so I can melt inside of you and sing. And so that knowledge of we are all one, the current of life is the knowledge he wants to pass on to us. So that we can, by consuming him as fish, we can experience the same current, the same vibration that he is experiencing. So that we too can know on a somatic level what it means to be one, to be all part of source. Um, which is interesting in light of the shootings in Atlanta um, because I'm thinking about and I've been thinking about the past few days you know how does spirituality and activism intersect um, they are not mutually exclusive not at all um, one can exist without the other but you don't have to choose one over the other they in fact are really great compliments like the yin and the yang spirituality is to ground you to dig deep inside and to understand who you are in this world who you are as a spirit soul having a human experience and then the activism is the action you take to help restore balance in the world so when you are grounded and you are confident in knowing who you are and being who you are the actions that you take from there can only help restore balance in activism, no matter what it looks like. You know, activism doesn't always have to look like kumbaya. 
right? Um, we need to continue to fight. It's not just lay down and say, hey, we're all one, peace, love, and harmony. No, no. We need to do what we are called to do in order to create change, in order to um, I don't know. I just, my brain is all over the place right now. If I want to be totally transparent and honest with you, um, it's all over the place because what, what's happening for me as an Asian American woman is that I'm wrestling between, well, not between, but I'm, I'm experiencing all of the feelings. I'm experiencing rage that something like this has happened. Um, I'm rage at the fact that this is not surprising given the um, systemic racism that this country, the United States, has been built on. Um, but just really, like, you know, it's there's different layers of rage. Uh, one is, you know, outrage at this happening at all, right? Uh, outrage at the way in which things have been handled with... Um, the media and how they're portraying things, how they're portraying the shooter as a human being, whereas the victims of his um, quote-unquote bad day are not human. We, you know, are only starting to see photos of these people who were killed. We're only starting, it's, it's very slow, a slow trickling in of the stories of who they were and I understand part of that is they the authorities haven't been able to either reach out to the next of kin um, to notify them of what's you know of, of their loved ones being one of the victims part of it could be you know they don't want to share those stories they don't want to be in the spotlight um, and I get that because as Asians and Asian Americans were taught to blend in we're taught to not make a fuss to not rock the boat to just go along with everything, to smile and nod and try to be as white as possible, to try to assimilate. Um, because if we do that, then we will have more opportunities. We will be able to achieve the American dream. Um, and we all know that that is, I don't even know what that is. I want to say that's a myth, that's a farce. I mean, both. Uh, the American dream looks different for a lot of different people. Um, ask indigenous folks, you know, what does the American dream look like? It doesn't include them, you know, unless their dream, which we can call American because they were here long before this country was created. Um, and their dream is to be, you know, in full sovereignty of who they are and, and how they're being. Um, but you know, with all that's going on and how these events and the aftermath is unfolding is, uh, is a lot to process. Um, and what really gets me as part of the outrage is that the, the hesitation to call it a hate crime is, again, not surprising but also still infuriating but in a way that myself along with other Asian Americans 
specifically Asian American activists are, um, we're just tired. We are just so tired. Um, it's, and we're sad, uh, grieving, I'm grieving. Uh, and, and I don't even know, like, it's so funny because the grief that I'm experiencing comes in waves and it, it sometimes looks different. I don't even realize that it's happening until I'm stuck, until I'm talking to other Asian American women. Um, and then I'm like, oh, that's what this is. Yeah. Okay. I see. So, um, yeah, there's something about speaking it aloud, right? So as I record this episode, I'm speaking aloud and talking about my feelings, my ways of processing uh, what's happened in Atlanta. But to feel it is an entirely different thing. So when I'm going through, or when I went through the, let's say first hearing the news, right? Before I even knew anything, the moment they said six Asian women I already knew it was a hate crime. I already knew it was some white guy with a gun who wanted to kill Asian women. I already knew it was something to do with fetishization and it just turned my stomach. I didn't have to hear anything else. Didn't have to read the news. I already knew. I already knew. And um, and so I went into this mode of this is what it's like to live as an Asian American woman in this country is to navigate these precarious spaces of being seen as an object, of being seen as property, as something to dominate, um, being seen as submissive, or, you know, conversely, as the dragon lady. Um, but it's, it just, oh. I mean, so many things are, are kind of flooding in my head right now. So I'm trying to stay focused as I, <laughs> as I work through this stuff. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it really, the first instinct was to talk about like, hey, this is what, this is our plight. This is, this is very real. And this hits home for me. This could have been, you know, one of my aunties, it could have been one of my titas, could have been my mom, could have been my grandma, you know, could have been any woman a, you know, Asian woman in, in my family or, um, you know, in our, in our community. And, um, and so I automatically went to this idea of home, you know, a lot of Asians have emigrated here from somewhere at some point in time, you know, depending on whether it was just last year or if it was, you know, generations ago. And, um, the idea of home has been something that's always been in the forefront for me. And so I wrote about that, like what kind of home do we live in where we don't feel safe, where we have to be on guard all the time? Um, you know, during this whole pandemic, it's, it's my, my tense, tenseness, we'll say, has, has alleviated um, over time, but I, I remember the beginning when the pandemic was first declared and it was considered uh, the fault of Asians. I actually was afraid to go to the store, but I had to go to the store. You know, I needed to get groceries and things for, for my family. 
Um, and so I remember thinking to myself, maybe I won't look, I don't look as Asian as I think I do when I have the mask on, you know, and here I am trying to erase myself um, for safety. So that is one of the real things that's going on right now. And, and for me, I'm not doing that. I'm not erasing myself, but this is, this is something that's very real where folks who are not Asian um, or an Asian woman don't realize that, um, don't understand that this is my daily life. This is my daily existence. Uh, and so when I was able to be in community with some fellow women writers of color uh, the, on the day after, or two days after, whatever it was, uh, I thought I was okay. I was like, okay, you know, got through that first day, you know, wrote out what I needed to write out, um, holding space for folks who are not okay. And then I had my, my writing group and um, they, they were talking about, you know, what had happened and particularly how the media is covering the, uh, the events and the kind of language they use and what angles they're presenting and how, in essence, it's erasing the fact that these women were Asian and it's erasing the fact that this was a racist hate crime. Um, and then they checked in with me and I uh, didn't realize how much I was holding until I started talking. And then when I started talking, I could feel the emotions starting to rise up and I was like, oh, that's interesting that sensation of wanting to cry is coming up. That's interesting. And so this is where spirituality comes into play is that instead of me totally breaking down and reacting and losing control and like just losing it in general, I was able to feel the feelings. You know, I was feeling upset and sad and grief and, and all the stuff. But at the same time, I was also observing it and noticing it. It's a very, it's a very, for lack of a better way, a very cool effect um, to, to have these two experiences simultaneously, to be both the observer and the one experiencing whatever the emotions are, the feelings are. And so I understood that what I was feeling and experiencing was part of the release process, was part of clearing out whatever heaviness I was carrying. But it was so interesting that that didn't come up until I had to speak out loud. You know, I had been writing, 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 writing. But the minute I opened my mouth, that's when everything just sort of opened up, when the floodgates just went whoosh. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. That's, there it is. There's the grief. And so, um, and so, yeah, so that's been good. And then, so the next stage of grief, I mean, I don't know the stages of grief off the top of my head, but I guess I want to say the next stage of my processing uh, is now, okay, I got my people. I've also noticed that I don't have a lot of people. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say people, I mean like people that I, that I know I can count on, people who will be there for me and I'm and, and I for them. Um, and it's moments like these that really are opportunities to to see who's really standing by you and who isn't. 
it's opportunities for people to step up to the plate and be there for you like they say they are and then see who shows up because now I'm at the stage where I'm noticing that I'm noticing all right who's reaching out who's reaching out to say hey are you okay hey I'm so sorry about all this stuff that's happened how are you holding up um hey I'm with you you know if you need anything you want to talk it out I'm I'm here and what's interesting is that I have not gotten a whole lot of that it's so fascinating to me and and specifically I'm thinking about the white people in my life it's so revealing to see how many of the white people in my circles in my community you know whether it's the parents of my kids friends or the people in my neighborhood uh, that I live in or people in my other circles you know um, how many of them have reached out to touch base to say hi I heard what happened are you okay and I want to say two people reached out that day that Wednesday and then a third person reached out on Friday and that was it three white folks who are my friends reached out and said hey I hope you're okay how you doing can I do anything for you I'm so sorry I can't believe this is happening um, I even had one friend she said you know make sure she's like I, I love that you're offering space for folks to to process to heal but make sure that you're doing that for yourself as well and I so appreciated her saying that because sometimes you know when you're in that in that mode of providing healing for other people and, and creating safe spaces for other people you forget that you also need that space right because it's like this default it's like oh I want to help I want to help I want to help and sometimes I need someone on the outside of me to say hey make sure that you take care of yourself too make sure that you are rejuvenating you're resting you are doing what you need to do to care for yourself so that you can continue to do the work that you're doing the awesome work that you're doing you know and then um, my second friend who reached out she um, actually sent me information for uh, a community um, gathering for Asian American Pacific Islander folks uh, who are healers and and the like um, to come and rest and restore so that was that was the thing it was like two of them together I was like oh great I'm taken care of that's awesome so grateful for that but then where are the rest of the the people who say you know yeah black lives matter yeah I'm doing what I can to be anti-racist I'm doing the anti-racist work I'm doing what I need to do to make change where are they you know I um had somebody earlier in it was the previous weekend before Atlanta had even happened I had a I had a, a text exchange with a friend of mine white guy uh, and we were talking about the vaccine 
and he um, he had gotten the vaccine he gotten his two doses um, his wife had gotten her first and I was like oh oh that's interesting and I was thinking to myself well how did she get um, an appointment when she's not in, in the eligible category he is you know he is he works in in healthcare, but she she wasn't in that kind of eligibility category and I thought that was interesting I was like oh okay and he said you know it's random I don't you know I don't know what's going on just you know it's there's no rhyme or reason to it and I was like oh all right cool and then I made a joke because what I had been seeing on my Facebook feed was that a lot of folks who are not part of the essential worker category or in the 65 and over category or in education um, we're getting the shot we're getting the we're getting vaccinated and of course you know I don't I don't presume to know you know how they got it you know maybe they've got underlying medical conditions that I don't know about you know maybe they've got this going on that going on you know maybe they do work in in you know industries where they are eligible and you know they're in different states and the the requirements are different for for other places you know I don't I know I recognize that I don't know the whole picture but what I noticed was that a lot of the folks on my feed were white folks getting the vaccine. And I said, huh, that's interesting. Okay, you know, just noticing, you know, I don't have any judgments about it. I'm just, okay, noticing patterns. And so I made a joke with my friend and I said something like, Oh, it seems to me that the the white folks, all the white folks, are getting the vaccine before everybody else, you know, before they should, or something to that effect. I don't even remember what I what I said exactly. And he got defensive, so his text back to me was like, "That's not true. I know people who are South Asian, African American, you know, Middle Eastern who've been getting their vaccines, you know." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and I and I wrote note to self don't make any race, racial jokes around you right and he he writes back oh no no I'm totally not about making racial jokes I believe that everyone is equal and um, racial racist jokes are wrong and you know all that all that good stuff and I said yeah but you just got really defensive when I made a white joke. So there's that. And silence after that, right? So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Another observation. And so that silence said a lot because we were kind of joking around and then it got serious. And, you know, he, he comes across as a progressive, you know, um, but how far does that progressive go um, a question that I ask of, of all white folks right how far how far are you willing to go uh, and so what what occurred to me later I was like oh okay I guess he's like busy or whatever but I didn't I haven't heard from him since and that was like a couple days ago um, actually that was a week ago and I still haven't heard from him which is bringing me back to the point of this moment of the killings in, in Atlanta. So the next day after that text exchange, still nothing from him. And I said, oh, that was, that's white man fragility. 
right? White male fragility at its best because I made a joke and it's not true. I'm going to get defensive and um, yeah. So that happened and uh, I was like, hmm, okay, notice, observe, put it in the, in the filing cabinet. Then Atlanta happens and nothing, not a peep. So that also speaks volumes. So for me, I'm wondering, you know, I'm not holding on. I'm not holding my breath for the white folks I know to reach out and, you know, say that they're there for me or try to comfort me or offer help or anything like that. No, I'm not holding my breath because I know in all of the activist work that I've done over the years, you know, since I was in my 20s, I know that the work that needs to get done is going to get done by us. And yeah, we need the help of white allies, but true white allies, like true white allies who are willing to put themselves on the line in order for us to have justice, in order uh, for us to have equality. You know, my, my friend who, um, who reached out and, and said, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself. She is someone who will most definitely put her own body in danger in order to save or protect the lives of folks of color. That's how committed she is. That's how much of an ally she is. And I want to say for most white folks, at least that I know, not willing to do that. Nope. Because that then risks their comfort. It risks everything that they know. It will turn their world upside down. And why would someone want to do that? Give up that convenience, that luxury, that privilege to help someone like me. So that's the other things that I'm thinking about. There's so many layers to what has happened in Atlanta. And the layers will continue to unfold. Um... I know that there is so much silence that it feels deafening. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it is. You know, when um, I just, yeah, I gotta take a moment for a second because that silence really hurts. Um, and when I talk about the silence, I talk about the collective silence. You know, when, when George Floyd was murdered, there was an outrage that the media could not ignore. And so the media covered it. You know, every report, everything. And yeah, since then, you know, things had died down. I mean, predictably so, right? There's something new, something better. The news cycle is so predictable. And I don't know if it's because we've grown desensitized to these kinds of things happening or what, but I feel like the response to the killing of six Asian women in Atlanta has been tepid at most in terms of 
journalism. Now, I know there are things happening behind the scenes that um, are complicating media coverage. They don't have to complicate media coverage, but this is what goes on, you know? So, because being Asian American is so, I mean, for lack of a better word, layered and complex, I guess. Um, you know, we've been conditioned to, to be the model minority, you know, to be the, the immigrant, the minority who doesn't rock the boat, who does as they're told, who's obedient, who, you know, stays in their box and stays in place and says all the right things and, you know, is so pleasant and accommodating and all this other bullshit. And so what I've been reading about um, in terms of what's happening behind the scenes in the journalism world is that there are some Asian American journalists who have been doing the the reporting. You know, they, they've been interviewing families, they've been doing the legwork, but they're not, um, I don't, they're afraid to write the article. They're afraid to publish the story because of this fear of writing about bias, writing, being received as biased, you know, oh, here's an Asian American reporter, you know, reporting on the stories of Asian American families who were affected by this tragedy, there's no way that this article could be unbiased. You know, how is that journalism? You know, how is that objective? So there's that concern. But then on the flip side, there's the white person who doesn't want to do the, the interviewing or the Asian American families don't want to talk to the white person, right? Could work that way too. And they kind of fumble around because they're not sure what they're doing and they guess at it and they're not sure. And then they just kind of pastiche something together that seems right, that looks right, kind of, and then they publish that. So it's been very sloppy, I'll say, um, from what I've seen. If it's, and we're just talking about mainstream media. So there's, there's, there's that layer as well. It's this, how can we amplify our voices, tell our stories, and really stand up for who we are and who we're being and, you know, just be like, hey, we are here and we demand to be seen and heard. We demand it. And what gets me is that there are people who are doing that. There are communities who are doing that. And there are allies who are, do, who are supporting us, who are amplifying us. But it, there's something that doesn't feel, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But I feel like this whole stereotype of the model minority of Asians being soft, you know, pervades the subconscious. That it's like, okay, yeah, we'll do all the... Um, all the actions, the protocols that we do in times of tragedy, you know, we'll make donations to the right organizations, we'll tweet this, we'll re-gram this, um, we'll at people on this, we'll sign a few petitions. Okay, we did our part. Let's move on to the next thing, right? And what gets me is that it took six Asian women to die before people started paying attention. Never mind the rise 
in crimes against our elderly. Never mind that. Oh, it was just one old person. Oh, it's so it's so tragic, but you know, but okay. I don't know. I just I feel like I'm talking and rambling, but I'm just I'm just trying to get listeners to see the varied picture of what's happening because what's happening on, in the media is very two-dimensional, very flat. And no one's asking us. No one's asking Asian American women how are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you okay? And I want to tell you, we're not okay. We're not. We may look okay, but inside we are not okay. And I don't know how you can help except for hear us and see us. Listen, really listen. Keep your mouth shut and really listen. Don't make assumptions about us. Don't throw other narratives in there that aren't useful. These women were women of Asian descent. Doesn't matter what they were doing. They were just working their jobs. We can go into the complicated structures of what it means to try to find work as an immigrant, as an Asian woman immigrant. But that's an entirely different conversation that I don't want to get into right now because I'm focusing on how we who are survived by these women are going to live and be in this world now without them. What do we do now? Well, for one, we tell our stories. Tell the stories you want to tell. It doesn't have to be, you know, this bad thing happened to me. It doesn't have to be, hey, you know what? I know exactly what you're talking about because this other thing happened to me too. It doesn't have to be that. It can be. You know, I can tell you all the times that I was fetishized. I could tell you all the times that I was on the receiving end of microaggressions and stereotypes. But, you know, in due time. But for some, some may not want to share that. You know, some may not see the point of it. Some may not see it as healing it doesn't matter. What matters is making your voice heard. If your voice is saying, you know, we want justice, we want equality, then use your voice for that. Honor where you are now, individually. Listen to your gut, go within Check in with your intuition, your inner wisdom, your inner knowledge, and ask, what is my next step? What's the next right step for me? And then do it unapologetically. And that's the one thing I think 
Asian American women have trouble with. Now, you know, people who are listening are like, wow, you're making a lot of generalizations. Yeah, I am. And it, it comes with a caveat like not everybody, okay? But this is this is just general sweeping statements so that I can have conversations about it. But I will say most Asian American women apologize the shit out of everything. And so what I want to say is speak your truth. Whatever it might be, it could be personal experience, it could be your opinion, it could be your demand, whatever it is, speak your truth unapologetically. If you are standing in your truth, if you are speaking from your heart, there is no reason for you to apologize. Because when you do that, you are apologize. You're apologizing for your being, for your existence. And no, you don't do that. Don't do that. Because you are here is enough. The fact that you are here, it just, you are here. You are worthy of being here. You deserve to be here. You are here. And when you are here, you can share your truth. Speak up. And if you don't feel like it's safe to do so, then come talk to me and I will help you get your word out in ways that feel safe for you, but also ways that you can be heard. <sighs> Man, it's a lot. It really is a lot. And, um, and I'm sure that uh, there'll be a lot more in the days and the weeks that come. Um, you know, what, what I see already happening is that the media is, the mainstream media, when I say media, I'm talking mainstream media. Um, the, the fire, the intensity is starting to diminish a little until, uh, until more developments happen with the case. But yeah. And so I'm going to keep going and the folks in my communities are going to keep going and we're going to, we're going to demand to be heard and we will be heard and we will be seen. Uh, yeah. Uh, next week I'm hoping to speak to someone who has uh, a daughter the same age as my oldest and um, I want to talk to her about how we talk to our daughters about something like this and so hopefully um, we can connect in the coming week and, uh, and, and get that to you okay so to, uh, to close this episode I, um, I pulled this off the shelf uh, I just feel like it's so fitting, so appropriate so what I need right now um, and before I, I tell you the book and, and read the poem, I do want to say that I hope you are able to see how spirituality and activism come together, how they can support each other and inform each other. Because, you know, how do you know what your next step is? How do you know what your truth is? You know by going within by doing the spiritual practices you need to in order to get familiar with who you are at essence on the inside and how that manifests and 
exists in this physical world, right? So my existence is that of an Asian American woman, daughter of immigrants, you know? Who am I at my essence? Well, I mean, essence, essence, I am love made manifest. And how does that love move in this Asian American woman body in this specific time of human history in this specific country, you know? So think on that. Okay, so the book is called The World I Leave You. It's an anthology of Asian American poets on faith and spirit. And oh, how much I need this right now. Um, it was edited by Leah Silvius and Lee Herrick. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to let the fates decide which poem we, <laughs> we, we get to read. Um, we're going to roulette it today. Ready? Okay. So let's see what do we got here. <sighs> okay. I know. I'm like looking at, I'm like, I'm like getting caught reading all the poems and like, I want to read this poem. I want to read that poem. No, I'm going to read the poem that I landed on. So this poem is by Priti Kar Rajpal. It's called Making Roti in the Langar Kitchen of Highway 99. After my grandmother became. Knives sleep the onions and garlic chopped in cubes of light thrown into the steel pot of dal. A chariot boiling over the room fills with a woman gaggle, discussing death and doe lies in from us, a beached whale, our heads covered in cloth like prayer I pinch off. Atta, roll small balls in my hands, pass them, to other women, a line of slapping, flipping, rolling, flattening, throwing onto the gas flame, the room blue, in hum of someone else's grandmother, overseeing stacks of hundreds of round roti to feed the hungry living guests on a Saturday close to cremation. We say in life a person is ahura. Adhura, only part of themselves, a person becomes pura, whole when they leave, return into the circling, a steel bracelet around our pulsing wrists. Here in the Langar kitchen, a small girl rubs butter on steaming rotis like I used to, learning the ways of being with blood her long hair in braids like ropes through time. In the corner, a lucky man on asylum, his turban loose with work, stirring the vat of milk with a wooden oar, reciting God's name to shroud us from curdling, peddling us through this thickening world of living, neither here nor there, his thumb a stub singed with boiling all the police left when the blades awake the men disappearing from Punjab's countryside like bread mm. Mm. 
sit with that one for a little bit. All right, my friends. Thank you for listening. I hope wherever you are, you're able to really appreciate love in your heart wherever you are. To be grateful for breath and for light. And on that note, the divine light in me bows to the divine light in you. Until next time, namaste. Healing is so necessary for women writers of color. Whether we know it or not, our traumas hold us back from expressing and becoming our truest selves. How can we be more present to this? How can we create new ways of understanding our hurts so that we can heal them and step into our life's purpose with radiance? Follow me on Instagram for messages of healing and support as you walk this journey that brings you home to yourself. Find me at this handle, at Yogi, S-U-R-Y-A-G-I-A-N-Y-O-G-I. Or visit my website to learn more at suryagian.com. Your best healed life starts now.